0: It's a privilege, a real privilege to be here speaking this morning and uh, sharing the word. It's been 18 months since our first walked through the doors of uh, Whitburn Pentecostal Church, and um, Louise and I have been made to feel incredibly welcome here. This is a loving church, a welcoming church, a friendly church, uh, a church that's full of faith, and uh, we're delighted to be part of this church. And I just want to say thank you to everybody that's went out of their way to, to welcome us, to, to make us feel part of the WPC family. So we feel that we are amongst family. I want to share this morning uh, from the life of King David. And I want to share a turning point in the life of King David. Because I believe there's some people here today who are looking for that turning point in their own life. So we're going to look at Psalm 142 today. So... We have some illustrations here. This Psalm 142 was written by King David in a point where he is hiding in a cave. So um, let's read the first half of Psalm 142, um, and then we're going to bring a preamble up to why David was writing this and uh, where he was going with it. So Psalm 142. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge, and no one cares for my life. That's a lament. That's a real lament. Can anybody identify with these Words from David, that you feel that um, nobody's bothered with you, that uh, life has conspired against you, that you're in a difficult spot and you can't see a way out. Well, let's go through, how did David arrive at this point in his life? So I'm going to be picking out some bits from 1 Samuel chapter 16 um, and, and onwards. So you remember the story about David, the first time I come across David really is um, when the prophet Samuel... Um, is told by God that King Saul, that God has rejected King Saul as the king of Israel. And he says to Samuel, go out to Jesse and uh, I want you to anoint one of his sons to be the future king of Israel. So the prophet does go out and uh, meets Jesse and uh, he says, can you, can you bring me your sons? And uh, first up, walking up to him, is the stunningly gorgeous Stephen Giorgio, and Jesse looks at this guy walking towards him this big tall strong strapping handsome man and Jesse says to himself under his breath surely this is the man that God's about to anoint as the king of Israel look at him he's stunning he's amazing and Nathan's wetting himself (laughs) but the Lord speaks to Samuel and says no, it's not him. He's not the one that I've chosen. And so Samuel goes through one by one, all of Jesse's sons, till he gets to the end of them and comes to the embarrassing point where he says, um, You got any more sons? <laughs> because God said to every one of them, No, it's not him, it's not him. And Jesse says, Aye, but it's just David. It's just David. And so David does come in from the fields, he's a shepherd. And David is chosen by God. God says to Samuel, that's him, that's the one. His plan, my plan for his life, my purpose for his life is to be a great leader in the nation of Israel. So let's go back a wee bit. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. You could be swayed by Stephen Giorgio's good looks. The good news is he has got a great heart as well and a great spirit, and I love Stephen to bits. He's a fantastic guy. Man looks at their appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, the world may say to you, "You you're not worthy because you don't look like a supermodel, because you don't have a million pounds in your bank account, that you don't have the right car, you don't have the right clothes to wear, You don't have the right toys to give to your kids. Whatever. The world may look at you and say, you are not worthy. But God does not look at those things. But the truth is, you may even look at yourself as the world looks at you. And you may say to yourself, I am not worthy. Look at me. I don't look like a supermodel. I don't have the the success that other people have. I don't have the money and the resources that other people have. I don't have that journey that they've had. But that's wrong. God does not look at you that way. Let me assure you, God chooses you. God chooses you. He created you. The good news is you weren't created on some assembly line in Taiwan. You know, as the, as the, the fact is they produce things again and again and again and again with mundaneness. You weren't made by Ikea. With the cheapest of material for a short sh- shelf life and a short lifespan. You were created by the creator of the universe. You were designed by the perfect one, the one who flung stars into space. You were designed, created, and put together with a purpose by the one true God who does all things well. You are his creation, you are his child. And he looks at you with complete love. And he sees your future. And he sees the potential that he placed in you. And he says, I made you for great things. I made you with a capacity to love. I made you for your family. I made you for your friends. I made you for your work colleagues. And you're going to reveal me to the world in a way that nobody else can. Because you're unique. And you were created by me. That's how God looks at you. And we need to get tapped into that. We need to look at ourselves in the same way that God looks at us. And God loves you. There is no doubt about that. Let me just share some key verses uh, about God's love. In Ephesians 3, 18, 19, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. God is love. John 3, 16, most famous passage in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God's love gives you eternal life. Eternal life. Romans 5:8. But God demonstrates his own love, for us in this, that whilst we were still sinners, that whilst we were still enemies of God, he sent Christ to die for us. That's love. 1 John 3, verse 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Lavished, I love that word. Lavished. It's rich, it's full, it's plentiful, it's, it's over the top, it's amazing, it's the best, it's lavish. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. What a great verse. You are chosen by the King of kings, the creator of life and love, To be saved, to be forgiven, to be the object of God's unfailing love, eternally in his kingdom, to enjoy eternal life, to be part of his family. Is anybody excited about that? Are you sure? I find that amazing. When you tap into these words, the word of God, the living word of God, when you live the living word of God and say, I believe that, I believe you love me like that. It is life changing. There is no mountain that is too high. There is no challenge that is too big. We move forward. So in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. What a fantastic statement. God chose David for a purpose. David's plan and purpose was to be the king of Israel. He sent Samuel the prophet. Samuel the prophet confirmed that he's there. God spoke to Samuel and said, this is the one. This is the one. Anoint him. And he did. And God's spirit came into David at that point. Fantastic. Fantastic. But that verse is incredibly important when we read what else happened to David later on in life, the things that he achieved, the important part of that verse is, the spirit of the living God came upon David. And that happens with us. If we invite God into our lives, that's exactly what happens to us. How important is it to be filled with the spirit of God? How important is it? Matthew 3.16, when Jesus started off his own ministry, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out, up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. So before Jesus started his ministry, the Spirit of God came upon him. Luke 3.16, John, uh, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Luke 11:13, 13, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Incredibly important, the Spirit of God. And so we go on in David's story. And filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, David goes out to meet his brothers who are out there in the armies of Israel. And the armies of Israel lined up against the Philistine army. And for 40 days, it's another 40-day period in the Bible, for 40 days, Goliath's been out there, this nine-foot giant, uh, taunting the armies of Israel, taking the mickey out of them, challenging them every day, Is nobody going to fight me. And David's going out there to meet his brothers with the pieces that his mother's made. (laughs) (laughs) To go and take them down to his brother's. That's how important David was at that time. Anointed to be the future king of Israel, and he's taking the pieces to his brothers. And his brothers see him and they say, no, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And David's asking, what's going on? And they're talking him through, oh, this, this big Egypt, Goliath, out here. Um, guy's killed thousands of folk. He's nine foot tall. He's uh, asking to fight the ar- anybody from the army, and uh, nobody's doing it. And Goliath's out there, and he's, he's hurling insults at, at uh, the, the Israelis, and he's hurling insults at God. And David, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, that's not right. And filled with the Holy Spirit as God speaks to them, David steps forward and says, I'll do it. I'll fight him. And his brothers are kind of rolling their eyes, oh, David. <laughs> but he does, he steps forward. And even King Saul says, oh, you can't go out and fight him like this. We need to put some armor on him. But that wasn't part of God's plan for David. The armor didn't fit He looked stupid in it. He felt stupid in it. So he took it off. He said, all I need is one pebble. actually took five. All he needed was one. And I love this picture. For 40 days, the army of Israel is gripped by fear. Gripped by fear. Until David stands out there. And uh, he's swinging the stone. And I don't know how you would feel if you were out there. Maybe you would think, oh, David's got this point where it, reality is going to come in as this Goliath, this nine-foot giant, starts to run towards him with murderous intent. You're mine. You're mine. I'm going to kill you. But as Goliath's running towards him, David is not gripped by fear. He only has one word in his mind as he's swinging this stone. Release. When's the moment to release? When's the moment to release? Here it is. Phew. And the stone goes, bang. <laughs> Just missed you. <laughs> and Goliath sit and he falls to the ground, and David pulls out Goliath's sword and removes Goliath's head from his body. And all of a sudden, after 40 days of fear, you can see on the right-hand side there, the army of Israel is filled with faith. And they step out in faith. God is with us, and they go and charge. And the Philistine army, who were, you know, loving it, when Goliath was out there and taunting them, they're all having a laugh. All of a sudden, they see Goliath fall to the ground, slain by God, taken out of the game. And they see the army of Israel rise up. And now the Philistines are filled with fear, and they flee. Great moment. Love that picture. Does anybody think it's a bit too gruesome? I wouldn't put it up in my living room or anything, but uh, I like it. I like it. <laughs> so, David's story. David's life takes a big turning point. This isn't the main turning point I'm talking about, but it takes a main, huge turning point. After that, David is renowned as a fantastic warrior. So far, his score is one. He's taken one out. This little shepherd boy has taken one out, but uh, it was the most famous one. So, all of a sudden... He's seen as a great warrior, and he does. He goes on to become a fantastic warrior. And they start to sing songs about him. Saul has killed his men in the thousands, but David killed them in the tens of thousands. And he does become a great warrior, a great warrior in the army of Israel. But then Saul gets jealous, and Saul rejects him and casts him out from the, from the Israeli army. And who takes him up but the Philistines? And he goes on to be a warrior with the army of, of, of the Philistines. Um, you might be wondering where I actually got the Roman outfit to pose for that pho- photograph there, but, <laughs> but I must confess that's not me. Actually, the guy in the, the stick-on beard—that's there, Brandon Newman. But <laughs> <laughs> it's very kind to do that photograph for me. It's great. So David becomes a legend with armies of of, of, uh, Philistine, Um, but when the Philistines are about to go up against the Israeli army again, they say, David, we can't trust you. You're an Israelite. You'll turn against us. So they cast him out. And so once he's cast out by the Israeli army, he's cast out by the Philistine army, and Saul then sends soldiers to go and hunt David down and kill him. That's the instruction. Go and kill him. So David flees and he flees to this cave at Adullam, And it's in this cave that David goes into the depths of this cave, wanders into this cave to hide. And he has nothing with him. No weapon, no food, no army. And he reflects. And he reflects on his life. And this is where he writes Psalm 142. And he's in there, and he's reflecting on his life. You know, I was anointed as the future king of Israel. And I went out there, filled with God's Holy Spirit, and I slayed Goliath when nobody else would. And I became this great warrior. And people flocked round about me. And yet here I am, in this cave. I've got nothing to eat. I don't have a weapon. I have no army. Was it all a load of nonsense? Was Samuel right when he poured that oil on me? Did he get it wrong? And so, you write Psalm 142. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge, and no one cares for my life. He's in that moment in that cave, and that's his thoughts. And in life, we have two choices when life conspires against us. When something terrible happens, you have two choices. Choice number one, you live in the circumstances of your life. You get stuck in your own story. And David, right at this moment, is stuck in his own story. He's looking about, I'm in this cave on my own. People are hunting me down to kill me. I don't have a weapon. I don't have any food. I'm abandoned. I'm rejected by everybody. Choice number two is you can believe the promises of God and step out in faith. And so David reflects, but I was anointed as the future king of Israel. I did go out in the power of the Holy Spirit and slay Goliath. So he goes out on to read and to write, I cry to you, O Lord, I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. And from that moment, David decides, he makes a choice. He says, I'm not going to stick, I'm not going to stick with the circumstances of my life. This is not the end of the story. I'm not going to hide in this cave for the rest of my life. I'm going to step out because God has said, I will be the king of Israel. And so I'm going to step out in faith. And so he does. He physically steps out of the cave. He moves forward. And amazing things happen. Absolutely amazing things happen. He goes forward and he goes to see the priest. A priest, a Himalek. And he says the most bizarre thing to a priest. And I can't ever imagine anybody coming in to see Stevie Roy on a Sunday morning and, and make the statement that David asks the priest, Do you have a weapon I could use? <laughs> and he does. He says, Do you have uh, a weapon that I can use? And ah- Ahimelech says, David, I've got Goliath's sword here. And David says, There is no weapon like it in all of Israel. Give it to me. And so he stepped out of the cave, and God gives him a weapon the greatest weapon that there is. I was um, speaking um, at a conference in San Diego a few years ago, and this exact verse absolutely blows me away, this this exact verse, 1 Samuel 21, verse 9, where Ahimelech says, I have Goliath's sword for you. I was praying going to this conference. I was the warm-up speaker for the main guy. Uh, The main guy was a a speaker called Bruce Van Natta, wonderful guy, and I would encourage you to go and look him up on the internet, Google his story, and uh, buy his book, which is called Saved by Angels. Uh, Bruce is the only man uh, known worldwide um, to have survived an accident where every major artery in his body was severed. He was a mechanic, and he was working on um, in the north of America, and he was underneath this big, massive uh, timber truck, and... Um, he was working away in this brand-new timber truck, and uh, he asked the guy to go and start it up. And the guy jumped in the cabin before he got out from underneath the, the truck, and the guy jumped and he started up and knocked it off the axle. And this whole truck fell down on Bruce. And the axle of the truck crushed his body across here down to one inch thick. And it severed every major artery. And uh, his story is that um, as he lay there, two angels came down. He says these nine-foot... Uh, giants full of light came down and they put their hands on me. And I stayed alive for 40 minutes, getting from there to the hospital. I should have died within two minutes. And he survived. Absolutely incredible story, absolutely incredible guy. And there's a whole lot of miracles that also happen in his life. Um, they had surgery and they took up, took out almost all of his in, intestines, apart from two feet. And for a few months later, he was dying because he, he couldn't get enough nourishment into his body. His body wasn't working. And so uh, the pastor from his church came and prayed with him, and nine feet of intestines grew back, and his stomach. Um, an incredible guy, incredible story, and an incredible ministry. He actually spoke that time about uh, the first time he went to um, El Salvador. Um, God speaks to them very strongly, and, and uh, God spoke to them. We go to this place in El Salvador, way out in, the, in almost the kind of jungle, and there was a disease that hit that area many years ago, and many people were born blind, born with uh, their eyes were white. And uh, as he was speaking, the Lord spoke to him and said, I want you to ask everybody here that's blind to come forward, and I want you to pray for them to get their sight back. And he's saying, Are you sure? <laughs> Say so Daddy called them all forward. There was 25 people came forward with uh, these white eyes. And he prayed for them. And he says, and 24 out of 25 grew pupils in their eyes right there and then and could see. Incredible stuff. Incredible. The reason I'm sharing about this is I was, I was praying uh, about, Lord, what, should I, what I should I speak on in San Diego when I'm, uh, I'm uh, speaking before uh, Bruce comes on? And um, very clearly... I heard the Lord say in that still, small voice. I want you to speak on 1 Samuel 21, verse 9, about David getting Goliath's sword back. I want you to tell people that in the journey that they walk with me, everything they do with me, they're investing. They're investing in treasure in my kingdom. But sometimes in this life, I will give that treasure back to them for their use. It's part of their journey. It's part of their DNA that I've placed in them. So I got up and I shared this message and then Bruce got up after me and he was super excited. And uh, he said, I want to pass this round. This is my notes for speaking today. And he says, I was praying last week. What should I be speaking on today? And the Lord told me to speak on 1 Samuel 21 verse 9. And everything that I had said, Bruce had it on his notes. So he did. He passed them around everybody. And, uh, and uh, he, he spoke on the same message. Absolutely fantastic. And we spoke afterwards. We worked out that the Lord spoke to us on the same day at the same time. It was a Monday afternoon. So don't tell me God doesn't speak. I do get frustrated sometimes with my Christian brothers and sisters. And I'm saying this in gentleness and in love. I like to be super skeptical. I like to pretend at times that uh, what if I'm not a Christian and I'm meeting a Christian for the first time and I'm hearing what the Christian's got to say. Can Can I take on board what they're saying or do I come to the conclusion that they're a nutter? So let's just take that for a minute. So I sometimes come across Christians who, now I know that God moves in and the tiny details of everybody's life, and I often hear Christians say, oh, you can't tell me God doesn't speak and answer prayer. I was driving into Morrison's car park the other day there, and I prayed, God, will you give me a parking space? And lo and behold, <laughs> lo and behold, God gave me the perfect parking space. Now if you share that with a non-Christian, they'll say, what an idiot, because I drive into Morrison's car park, and I don't pray, but my goodness, I get—I often get a very good parking space. We do have to consider what we're saying. I did hear one Christian say once, he said, oh, I had a terrible cold, but you know, I prayed and asked the Lord for healing, and two weeks later, I was totally healed in my cold. <laughs> Sometimes the things we say, they're ridiculous. They're ridiculous. How does that witness to a lost and confused world when what we're saying is ridiculous? So, I pray that the Lord will give you instances in your life where you can testify where there is no shadow of doubt, there is no other explanation apart from God turned up and God did something. That's what we need to share with an unbelieving world. That's what we need to share. Strong, strong evidence. Otherwise, we're diluting what we say. If we tell the car park story to people, how can they validate anything else we say? As soon as we open our mouth, they say, oh, here we go again. So, in this cave, in this cave, David's in this cave. And I showed that Psalm 142 is split into two sections. You've got the lamenter, where he's living in the circumstances of his life. And I think we've all been there. Maybe you're there just now. I had a client I'm working with this week um, who's going through a messy, messy divorce. And somehow, in amongst all this divorce, where his, his wife has been cheating on him for three years, he's had some terrible things happen to him, um, somewhere in that three-year journey, he came to faith. But he says, I'll be honest, Stephen, I am a disappointed believer. My life is rubbish. And I think in this moment, when you read the first half of Psalm 142, David is a disappointed believer. He can read it in his words and his thoughts. Sometimes life does conspire against us. I've had some disasters in my life. There's three I can think of where I fully believe in, in the words of Jeremiah 29 that God has a plan for your life. Fully believe that. Fully believe that. But there's three times I'll be honest in my life where I've said, I am not a fan of this plan. <laughs> I am not a fan of this plan. And you can see from from David's words in Psalm 142 in the first half of that, when you look at the circumstances, he has been rejected by everybody. Nobody wants to play with him anymore. None of the armies. And uh, he has nothing. And I don't think he's a fan of the plan at that moment. No. But still he decides, he makes a choice, he chooses to believe, and he steps out in faith. And so he steps out, and he's given the sword, Goliath's sword's given back to him, and then the next chapter we read in 1 Samuel 22, that God sends to him 400 men um, to form an army. Now you think, that's great, God has answered my prayer, he has sent me 400 outstanding men to fill this army. But in verse Two of First Samuel 22, verse 2. The 400 men are described as men of debt, distress, and discontent. Basically the rejects of society at the time. Men of debt, distress, and discontent. And again, as the world looks at it, maybe David's looking at these guys and kind of rolling his eyes at God and saying, really? Really? But the truth is that these 400 men of debt, distress, and discontent they become known as David's mighty men. They form, form the core of an undefeated army. I think our technology has stopped working here. It's just more pictures of guys with six-packs, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they form the core of an undefeated army who go on to have victory after victory after victory, after victory, after victory, until... (coughs) That's Brandon on the right, I'm on the left. (laughs) (laughs) They go until victory, after victory, after victory. Uh, Brandon really got into it with this picture. (laughs) Until David becomes king of Judah and David becomes king of Israel. And as we read at the end of Psalm 142, set me free from my prison that I may praise your name, and then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. And David, when he becomes king of Israel, goes into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant, and the whole city gathers round about him, the whole righteous, and David praises God like a dafty and strips off and dances about like a crazy man because he is just so grateful to God. He gives God everything in his praise. So what message is this for us today as a church, as Whitburn Pentecostal? Well, I think of um, instances in my own life. I did say that uh, back in that that cave moment where I wasn't a fan of the plan, I'll give you one instance. Uh, Going back uh, 2008, the recession came in this country, and I had a house-building company at the time, very successful. We had a £3 million turnover. We won Scotland's House of the Year. Fantastic, great success. Then the recession came along, and I lost the company. I lost every penny. Lise and I lost every penny that we had, apart from the roof over, were hit. But every man that worked for me was paid in full. Everybody that supplied me was paid in full. But I had hit, been hit by this terrible disaster. I had 30 guys working for me at the time. I had to pay them all off. It was a terrible, terrible moment in my life. My life was turned upside down. And I felt like a complete failure. Like David sitting in that cave on his tod, with his belly rumbling, with no food in it, and no weapon to defend himself, and this great warrior with no army round about him, hiding, cowering away. And I felt like that for months. But in that moment, in that cave moment, God did not think I was a failure, and God did not look at me as if I was a failure, even though I looked at myself in the mirror, and all I could see was the big words, failure. I, d- I hadn't done anything wrong. Just the, the whole economy had turned, and yet here I was, penniless, and with no job, and everybody that worked with me I had to be paid off. I was on my own. But in that moment, God did a wonderful thing. Um, probably one of the most spectacular things that's happened in my life, God sent three strangers along to come and speak to me and all give me the same message. Gave me a word from the Lord that said, Stephen, the reason you were created, the reason you were made was to help people fulfill their full God-given potential. And God is going to gift you to remove barriers from people's minds so that they will fulfill their full God-given potential. And God will send people from all around the world to seek you out and you will help them. You will remove these barriers and they will fulfill their full God-given potential. So at that point I moved into psychology and uh, worked for myself and I've never advertised my work and God has been true to his word. He has sent over 2,000 people to me through word of mouth. And the barriers have been removed and they move on, went on to fulfill their full God-given potential, many achieving great things, many people becoming world-class in sports things and business things, etc. But I was just reflecting on this this week. I remembered that um, in the run-up to that, there was two amazing things happened. One was uh, a Christian fellowship I was involved in at the time, still am, called Businessman's Fellowship, worldwide organization, active in 100 countries, half a million members worldwide, and uh, in the UK, they just lost their leader. And I was invited to the UK council meeting, and um, the guys were saying, "Oh, we need to pray about who the next leader is. And uh, I was sitting there, Mr. Failure, feeling absolutely empty. I don't know why I'm here. I've got nothing, Lord. I don't know why you've brought me to this meeting. And they all prayed, and uh, they all said, we believe God has spoken as to who the next leader of this organization is, and we believe it's Stephen. I said, well, it's news to me. You never said anything to me. (laughs) (laughs) Every single one of these leaders said, we believe it's Stephen. Uh, Stephen, you're the new chief executive of this organization. And... uh, So uh, thankfully, God spoke to me that night, and it was confirmed, etc. But the first challenge that I faced was the organization ran out of money. I just became appointed the head of this organization to lead it forward, and we ran out of money. And we had this missionary trip to Africa organized where some doors had opened in in the countries of Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi. These doors had opened, and we'd planned all these meetings, etc., etc., and we ran out of money, So I then had half the members in the organization saying, we need to pull out. We need to protect God's reputation here. We can't afford this, so we need to withdraw. And I had the other half of the members of the organization phone me up and email me saying, God has asked us to do this. You must find a way for this to happen. I said, we have got half of the organization going one direction, half of the organization going another direction, and here's me, Mr. Empty, Mr. Failure, thinking, what am I going to do? So I prayed, Lord, what do you want to happen here? I've got no idea what you want to do. What do you want to do? And I believed God said, want, I want this to happen. Great things are going to happen. This is a test of faith. Do you have the faith? I'm with you. And so I ended up, I borrowed money for the organization. And again, uh, to, to fulfill this, this missionary trip. And again, I had half the members contact me and say, You've borrowed money, you've put the organization in debt. You're a disaster of a leader. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks very much. This is a terrible decision. Uh, and I'd rather have saying, you were doing the right thing. And lo and behold, um, where a group of guys went over to these countries, spoke in these four countries, and amazing things on biblical proportions happened. Um, that was eight years ago. And from that first trip, eight years later, we know of 41,000 men that have came to faith. 41,000. And that's just the men that have came to faith at the meetings. We believe their whole families have then went on to, to come to faith. Uh, great great moments. There was, um, on that trip, um, there was two of our men went and spoke um, in a town where there was a whole lot of trouble going on between the young folk and the elders in the town. In fact, there was a lot of violence and uh, they set up this uh, out- outreach meeting a football field beside the school. Somebody donated goats to be slaughtered and killed. This is Kenyan culture. And they cooked these coats on, ov- over oil barrels and fed this crowd of thousands of people. And uh, just when the guys were about to go and speak and share 10 minutes of testimony, gunfire opened in the crowd, and uh, just terrible things going on. But they say, right, you better go and speak now. <laughs> But they did, they stood up and spoke and shared testimony for 10 minutes and said, would anybody like to receive this Jesus? And 1,500 of the young people, the whole young crowd in this town, all 1,500 of them came forward and were baptized in the river and were invited back to this place, this town, a year later to plant trees of peace because from that moment onwards there was no more trouble in the town. Tremendous things. God is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or think. The circumstances can look dire in our own personal lives, uh, in our our community, in our church. We can look like we're restricted, that we've got nothing, that we're a failure, that we're perhaps even hiding. One last story. My neighbor that lives across the road from us has a very beautiful Mercedes car. Very beautiful, apart from the color. It's aubergine. Aubergine, kind of weird, kind of hearts maroon looking thing. but it's a very expensive car. It is a beautiful car. I think he's had that. We've lived in, in that street for 10 years now. I think he's had that car the whole 10 years. Yes, I think he has. Anyway, he only brings this car out when the sun shines. <laughs> and he brings it out in his driveway, and he, washes, he takes out his garage, he washes it and polishes it, and if the weather's really good, he'll take it out for a drive. He fills up his tank once a year. This beautiful, expensive car. Stunning, apart from the color. (laughs) And he only takes out once a year. And it makes me think, sometimes we can be like this as Christians. That we have the power of the living God, the Holy Spirit, deposited within us. We have salvation. We have eternal life. We have unfailing love as a part and a feature of our life. And this power that raised Jesus from the dead... God promises us that that power is within us for a purpose, for a purpose. But do we only take our faith out when the road is easy? That the guy who's Mercedes, where the roads have got to be quiet, the sunshine's got to be just right, the temperature's got to be just right. He only takes his car out in certain temperatures. Are we like that with our faith? There is outstanding potential in this church Fantastic potential in this church to impact Whitburn and West Lothian with the kingdom of God. Outstanding potential. But I don't think we're fulfilling that potential. We are going to have to step out of the cave and step forward in faith. We're going to have to get in tune with God and step forward in faith. One last thing I want to say, and I think it's a bit controversial, Somebody's opening the door already for me to go out. Um, <laughs> I'm asking you today to do something. I'm asking you to stop doing things for God. In fact, I'm going to beg with you to stop doing things for God. And with every fiber of my being, I'm going to beg and plead with you to do things with God. Too often we do things for God. We step forward and we protect his name, we protect his reputation Uh, and we do things on behalf of God. Yeah, like God needs our help. Like God needs our help, honestly. David, when he stepped out and fought Goliath, he did not do that for God. He did that with God. He was filled with God's Holy Spirit. That was God's plan and his purpose for David's life. We need to, as a church and as individuals, get tuned into what is God's plan and his purpose for us as individuals and for us as a church. And when we are tuned into that through prayer, through meditation on his word, through hearing people like Ray Stokes, uh, through meditating on that, what is God saying? We then have to, we then have to step out in faith and move forward and saying. I know we don't have a weapon in our hands just now. I know we don't have a, a, a belly full of food. I know we don't have the army that we need, like David. But he stepped forward, and God gave him the mightiest of weapon. God gave him an undefeated army. They hadn't been in battle together yet, but they became an undefeated army. And they went on, and David was fulfilled as the king of Judah and the king of Israel. God has a plan and a purpose for this church. But if we stay here in the safety of of our Sunday worship, if we stay in the safety of our current program, that's not enough. That is not enough. But we cannot step out ahead of God either. We cannot step out in our own ideas and our own possibilities and think, well, we'll just do this for God and maybe God will show up and turn up. We have to, we have to pursue prayer and meditation on his word until we know What is it God wants us to do? And then we can gloriously, even though we don't have all the answers, and even though we don't have all the resources, we can then step out in faith. And with God, we will see God work. We will see God do amazing things. And that is our word for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed by your word, your word that reflects your character, your word that reflects your love, your grace, your mercy, your power, your authority, your plan and your purpose for us. Father, we lift ourselves to you this morning. We, we lay ourselves before you and we say, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Reveal to us your plan and your purpose. Lord, help us not to be the neighbor who shines the Mercedes and say, we're glad we've got this church and how much we love this church. But Lord, help us to to go out there and drive and, and, and use this machine, this church that you've put together. Use it for the plan and the purpose that you've brought it into being. Father, we know that you go before us. We know that you prepare a way. And Lord, we pray that we will get tuned in to what you want us to do. Lord, that we will step out from the cave, that we will say you are our provider. Yes, and we will praise your name and that the, the righteous will gather round about us. And Lord, we pray that the, the unrighteous will gather round about us and that they'll meet with you, Lord, through the works of this church, through the people you've called together to be this church. Father, we praise you. Father, we worship you. And Father, we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.